Let us pray. Amos, <coughs> eternal and everlasting Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, how awesome it is that you are such a great God. You are majestic in all your ways, compassionate, loving, patient with us. We are thankful for our Savior, our High Priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who pleads constantly on our behalf, for which we are grateful. This morning we have gathered together in obedience to your instruction that we should do so, especially as we see the evil days draw near. We know we are in tumultuous times, but underneath are the everlasting arms that sustain us. So, Father, we pray now that God the Holy Spirit, who is the perfect communicator, will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. Still in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 through chapter 11, verse 1. I'm beginning to read in verse 27 that says, If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, This has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you, and for conscience' sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. Even as I try to please everybody in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. Now let me refresh your mind that the message of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 23 through uh, chapter 11 verse 1 that we have been considering is that you should use your freedom in Christ in such a way to advance the spiritual needs of others. Now we asserted that we will expand the message by focusing on three Responsibilities you have as a believer in Christ. Pertaining, of course, the concept of freedom that you have in Christ, given in the passage that we're studying. Now, the first, if you recall, is that you should understand that not everything you have right to do helps others spiritually, but you are required to seek the good of others. The second is that you should understand that your use of your freedom is not absolute. So you need to adjust its application. Now this responsibility we stated demands you should know when to use your freedom in Christ and when not to use it. We indicated that you should use your freedom, that's positively, in Christ when enjoying God's provisions that in ordinary use are not in and of themselves sinful 
and do not impact your testimony before the unbelievers because you recognize that God created all things on this planet. This, we indicated, of course, is a positive aspect of the second responsibility. We also stated that the negative aspect of the second responsibility that the believer has regarding the concept of freedom in Christ concerns when not to use it, which is when your faith is directly challenged. Now, in our passage, the we are studying, the situation is when an unbeliever host informs a believer guest that the meat offered as part of the meal said before uh, such an individual is sacrificed to a pagan god. The believer is then instructed not to eat it. So we considered two related reasons the believer should refuse to eat that meat. The first is for clarity regarding the authenticity of the Christian faith. This the believer does by making an impression on the host that the believer does not accept idol as worthy of worship and so would not want to have anything associated with an idol. The second concern concerns the matter of conscience of the unbeliever who made the believer aware of the source of the meat that is part of the meal said before the believer. The Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul presented using rhetorical questions to objections a believer may give regarding the instruction not to eat the meat. The first is that the believer's freedom in Christ should not be determined by the conscience of another person. That would be the first objection. The second is that there is no reason a person should criticize the believer who eats such meat since the individual offered thanks to God before eating it. Now, so these two objections uh, lead to a third reason a believer should not use the individual's freedom when there is a challenge to the Christian faith by an unbeliever. And that's precisely where we begin this morning. A third reason a believer should not use personal freedom in situations where there is a challenge to the Christian faith is that, very simple, God's glory supersedes any human freedom in Christ. Again, the reason God's glory supersedes any freedom, any human freedom we have in Christ. Now this third reason is derived from what the Holy Spirit gave to Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. Again, it reads, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now, it may not be clear that verse 31 supplies a third reason a believer should not consider freedom in Christ as absolute in its application because the verse uh, seems not to be concerned or really not be connected to the rhetorical questions 
of verses 29 and 30. In fact, it is because the connection between verse 31 to verse 29 uh, and also verse 30 is not that obvious that caused some interpreters to reject the possibility that the structure of verses 29 and 30 fits into what is called diatribe. Diatribe. That the lexicon, uh, the lexham Bible dictionary states this way and I quote. Now I say, a diatribe. D I A T R I B E, diatribe. Now, quoting, this is what that really means according to the Lexham Bible Dictionary. Quote a, Gre- a Greco Roman literary style characterized by a question and answer structure used in much literature of the period, including New Testament letters, especially Paul's. Of course. But we contend though that there is a connection between verse 31 and the preceding two verses. There are two supports for this interpretation. First, the context demands that this verse be considered a thought reason for limiting the use of believers' freedom when there is a challenge to the Christian faith in terms of being involved in an activity that in and of itself is not sinful. But a believer's involvement in such will send a wrong message to an unbeliever about the Christian faith. The apostle gave the first two reasons in verse 28, but before he gave the third reason, he presented two objections that a believer could mount regarding the instruction not to eat meat that a host had indicated was sacrificed to an idol. Now it is after presenting these objections that he then responded to the the objection in a way that that not only answers the objection but established a general principle by which believers should carry out the activities on this planet. So that's the first reason the context and how he continued demands us to know that this is a third reason. Second, the word so is our second reason. That word so that begins uh, verse 31 in fact supports our interpretation as we will seek to demonstrate to you. The word so is translated from a, a Greek conjunction that has several usages. However, in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31, its usage is subject to two possible interpretations. A first interpretation is that it is used as an inferential conjunction. Conjunction that is never about to draw inference. So, inferential conjunction so that it is used to convey a deduction Conclusion, summary, or inference to the preceding discussion. And so maybe translated something like, So, therefore, 
Then, I know many, sometimes many people just speak English, they, they don't really pay attention, so you hear people say, so therefore, that's, that, that's not the correct English. Because you put in, that, that's more like tautology, really what you're doing. The other say so, or therefore, both of them mean the same thing. So if you say, so therefore, you're just repeating yourself. Anyway, so this is the thing that we have here. Uh, so either you use the meaning uh, therefore, or you use the meaning so. So this usage, of course, leads to the interpretation that verse 31 is a logical conclusion to what the apostle had taught in chapters 8 through 10. Now, so that's one usage. Another usage of the conjunction is a marker of a response, in which case it could be translated again so, now or really in reply. Now, the usage, this particular usage I've explained to you, is not often recognized, even in our uh, lexicons, but it is a legitimate interpretation of the Greek conjunction as a standard Greek-English lexicon of Bauer, Danke, At, and Gingrich tells us. Now, because this usage is not that commonly recognized, we need to demonstrates from some biblical passages that this interpretation of the Greek conjunction is appropriate. Now the conjunction is used in the interaction between Jesus Christ and the Samaritan woman. The Lord Jesus requested the Samaritan woman to give him water to drink as we read in John chapter 4 verse 7. And hold on to uh, the Gospel of John, uh, about four more passages, five more passages in John. So hold on to that. John chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 7. It is when a, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? Now the woman, her response is given in verse 9. Move to verse 9. That's John 4, look at verse 9. Verse 9, this is her response. says, The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink. I mean, you just don't know the, the hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews is unimaginable. That's why I say, somebody who is thirsty, how dare you? You're a Jew. You, how dare you? Ask a, a, a Samaritan woman to give you water to drink. Anyway, look at what it says. For, look at here, it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, the translators of the NIV and some of our English version, they now translate our Greek conjunction that actually begins this verse. Although some English versions translated it using the word so or therefore. Now it makes sense to accept that verse 9 is a response of the Samaritan woman to the request of Jesus Christ. 
Thus, the verse, verse 9, couldn't begin with the phrase, in reply. It could begin with that phrase, in reply. So that the first sentence of verse 9 will probably read something like this. In reply, the Samaritan woman said to him. In reply, the Samaritan woman said to him. But that's not given in our, most of our English versions. So it makes sense because of the Greek word that we have beginning, the Greek conjunction that begins verse 9. So this may be, uh, may appear of course redundant in the English, but it conveys the sense of the Greek word used. Now another example where our Greek conjunction is used to indicate a response is when a man approached the Lord Jesus to request healing for the son. As we read still in John chapter 4, look at verse 47. John chapter 4, like I say, hold on. John chapter 4, verse 47. It is, When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. The response of the Lord Jesus Christ is given in the next verse. Look at verse 48. He says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. Now the translators of the NIV and many of other English versions, they not translate our Greek conjunction that begins the verse. But some did with the word so. Now we cannot be certain whether those who use the word so in their translation, use it to indicate a response. Nonetheless, our Greek conjunction is used as a marker of response of Jesus Christ to the unnamed man in verse 48. Because he will say, if, if we translate it from what I've said, in reply, now Jesus told him, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders. Say again, the Greek word conjunction should be translated in response somewhere to that effect. Now another example of the usage of a Greek conjunction to introduce a response is in the Lord Jesus' response, of course, to the question of the Jews who wondered if he will give them his flesh because Jesus has stated that he is the bread of life. Which, if anyone eats, it's not really eating, it's figurative for if anyone believes in him. But he says, if anyone eats, that person will live eternally. The question of the Jews, of course, is given in John chapter 6, verse 52. John 6, 52. It is. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? See how you know they misunderstood what he was telling them. I mean, you don't have enough flesh to give us to eat, so we all get uh, to live forever. 
Where the law, the response of the Lord Jesus Christ is then given in look at verse 53. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now that's almost unbelievable. Can you understand that? What do you mean by eating your flesh, drinking your blood? So that's uh, what they have. With, uh, the Lord responded this way. Yes, and what I'm saying, only that happens. Again, the translators of the NIV did not translate our Greek conjunction that in- introduced Jesus Christ's response where our Greek conjunction could be translated something like in reply. In reply, Jesus said to them. Anyway, the examples we have given should convince you that our Greek conjunction could be used to respond to a question. To respond to a question. Now it is likely that the translators of the new century version adopted the second usage of our Greek conjunction because they began 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31 with a sentence. This is where the New Century Version begins. It says, they read, the answer is, in other words, the same as in reply, really. So he said, the answer is. So in effect then, the second uh, interpretation that our Greek conjunction is used as a marker of response will mean that the Apostle Paul answered the rhetorical questions of the preceding two verses and so verse 31 will be considered an additional reason for a believer to limit use of freedom in Christ when Christian faith is being challenged. So that is the reason we know because it's in response. So the Apostle Paul is giving another reason which allows us to say this is the third reason. Anyway, we have considered the two possible interpretations of the Greek conjunction that begins verse 31. So the question is, how then should we understand the Greek conjunction translated so in the NIV of verse 31? How do we understand that? Now to answer, the answer of course really is that both interpretations I implied in our passage. The situation is that the apostle probably assumed that the objections to the instruction not to eat meat that uh, uh, that an unbelieving host had uh, informed the believer that is from uh, sacrificial meat made to an idol are correct. In other words, he's given the the person who is protesting. How is your freedom going to affect me? I will give thanks to God. Why shouldn't I eat it? And he said, yeah, yeah, you, you're correct. So he's assuming that. Thus, the apostle responded by saying something like this. Such objections are valid. But, there is something more important than freedom one has in Christ. In this specific condition or situation. 
That's what I believe he's saying something like that. When he, when he used that Greek word, he said, yes. In response, yes, you're right. But bear in mind, there's something more important. Now, that's a, some of those things that uh, we believers, we so often miss. There's more, something more important in life than some of the things we will fight over. They're not that important. When it comes to your relationship with Christ, nothing is as important. So this is what the apostle is saying. Yes, you're right. Even though you, whatever you say is right. Yeah, but that's not as important as the thing that we have to recognize here about Christ. Anyway, this being the case, the conjunction that the apostle began, uh, verse 31, is used not only to supply the third reason for the instruction the Holy Spirit gave to him, but to provide a generalized guideline that should govern every activity of the believer on this planet, since the apostle went from the matter of food and drink to every activity of believers on this planet, as in the sentence of First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 that we're studying. Look at what he said. Whatever you do. I see, he's been talking about food. Drinking and all that, eating. Whatever. He just suddenly he left it. And added this thing. Whatever you do. That's an important principle. Whatever you do. And we're going to elaborate on that uh, shortly. Now this guideline though. Is to put the glory of God. Above every other thing on this planet. As given again in that sentence, it says, So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So, there are two questions we need to uh, examine. The first is how should we understand the sentence? Whatever you do. The second is what does the phrase the glory of God mean? What does that mean? Now we begin with the first question of how to understand the sentence, whatever you do. Now the range of meaning of the Greek word for A-O translated do helps us in understanding what the Holy Spirit intended for us in the sentence, whatever you do. The Greek word may mean to produce something material, hence means to make, to manufacture, or to produce. Another meaning of the Greek word is to undertake or do something that brings about an event or a state or a condition. And so it really means something like to do, to cause, to bring about, to accomplish, or to prepare. Now still, another meaning of the Greek word is to carry out an obligation of a moral or social nature. Hence, the Greek word means to keep, to carry out, to practice, or even to commit. Thus, the sentence, whatever you do, is concerned with what a person can undertake, or produce, or carry out. Now this being the case, the apostle 
is concerned with every activity of our lives on this planet. I don't care what it is. I'm saying it covers every activity that you and I participate or commit ourselves to on this planet. That's what's involved here. Now, of course, it is impossible to list every activity a believer could be involved in on this planet that is covered under that word whatever, whatever. Nonetheless, for the purpose of our study, we can classify our activities in this life in two general categories of physical and spiritual as a broad uh, based description. Now, physical activities could further be classified into two activities. Activities carried out in the homes and those carried out outside the home. Now, the activities carried out in the home include, but not limited to, cleaning, preparing food, and every activity that is necessary to make living in a home comfortable or enjoyable. Now, added to these are two important activities of raising children, and doing marriage. That's what I said. Raising children and doing marriage. And now, some of you, if you, I know some of you listen intensively because when I talk to some of you, I understand that. You pick up those words. Yeah, I know. So if you, one of those that pick up and you, you say, what do you mean by doing marriage? Yeah, well, let me answer before you ask me. I drew my rounds around with you. Anyway, now when I use the expression doing marriage, I mean primarily two things. Primarily. This is another one I add to it, but primarily two things. I mean, the first is the daily interaction of the husband and wife with each other. That's the first part. And the other is sexual relationship between them as the Holy Spirit communicated through Apostle Paul in the seventh chapter of First Corinthians that we studied in detail. So, doing marriage also involves the responsibilities of the husband and wife. In effect, there is the responsibility of a wife Submitting to the husband. That's part of the doing marriage. And the husband loving and ruling the wife. Part of that doing marriage. So the activities carried out then uh, outside the home include, but not limited, to work that may involve producing something governing others, and entertainment. Now anyway, we have given a summary 
of physical activities of a believer that are included in the word, whatever of the sentence, whatever you do. Now the problem that we must contend with in this sentence is how to be involved in these activities to satisfy the instruction of 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we say, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. Now, but before we get to that, let us focus our attention on the activities that are spiritual in nature. Now, spiritual activities of believers are easier to list than the physical activities of the believer. That is just much easier. Because the Bible gives us easy way to do that. Now the scripture gives us the activities of believers should be involved in as they live out their lives on this planet. There are at least seven types of spiritual activities that a believer should be involved that are covered under the word whatever of the sentence, whatever you do. The early church provided us with four activities that believers should uh, jointly be involved with or should carry out. And I'm referring to the activities uh, stated in Acts Chapter 2, verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. These are some of the activities from the early church. So they provided us four of, those, uh, four of the seven I mentioned. I'm going to be mentioned anyway. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 reads, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now as we have have stated, there are four activities of the elector that every believer has passed of the Christian community should be involved with. Now notice what I say, should be involved with. The first is the foundation of every other thing. It is the studying of the word of God under the teaching of gifted teachers of the church with authority to do so. Although here, the gifted teachers are described as apostles in the sentence, look at it again, say, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now I'm going to keep emphasizing this because here we have the problem in Christianity all over the world, especially in this country. It's because too many people do not want to be under any authority. I mean, they cover it up. They don't want authority. This is why most, you know, we have all this Everyone's teaching everything in the Bible. Because people do not want to be under authority. And of course, the other part of it, in my judgment, I may be wrong, is that some of us pastors are so lazy that we, that we outsource 
our responsibility of teaching to somebody else in a local church, calling him or her, whatever, Sunday school teacher, whatever. That's not authorized in the scripture. It is something people come up with, and that's why we have a mix. But teaching of the word of God requires authority. That's why it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now the starting of the word of God here is a group study. A group study of the scripture under one with the authority to teach it. It is not a private study that a person gets involved with after receiving the teaching of the word of God. No, it is a study of the Bible where believers assemble with each other Thus, it is necessary to assemble with other believers or be a part of a local church in the study of the word of God. Now, I realize that we have means today of delivering the word of God to people. But when you get involved in such means, you should recognize that such means are intended to help those who want to be a part of a local church that studies the word of God, but are unable to do so physically. So what I'm saying is, just because we have the ability for you to stay in your house and tune to us live, is not something given to you to do as a matter of confidence. It should be because you are so sick you can get up. That's it. Or whatever happened in it. That's it. It is not because of confidence. Because if you listen, alright, you do. But it's, if it's out of confidence, you still have not fulfilled your responsibility before the Lord. Sure, you listen. But you did it out of your own confidence. Not because you want to task yourself to do what God expects you to do, which is to assemble with your fellow believer and listen. And so we know there are people, just as the apostle wrote letters to the churches, there are people all over this world who are scattered, who are listening to us the same time that we do. Now, they couldn't be here physically. That's different. But somebody in this congregation, you know, I sit to my Gary, Gary, because, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever reason you give, unless you're sick in bed. There's no other reason. There's no authorized reason that you can satisfy this responsibility. So anyway... An important spiritual activity of every believer is learning the word of God under a teacher of God's word. Unless, of course, a person has the gift of teaching. Now, even then, a person with the gift of teaching must busy himself with the studying of the word of God. Now, the second activity, every believer should participate jointly with other believers, is having fellowship with fellow believers, as in the phrase of, I'm still looking at Acts 2.42. So he said, to the fellowship. To the fellowship. Now the word fellowship is translated from a Greek word that here has a sense of participation, fellowship. That is, the act of sharing in the activities or privileges of an intimate association or a group. 
Now this word reminds us again of the reason we should assemble together with fellow believers in a local church where possible. Now fellowship here refers to spiritual fellowship in which there is a real sense of connection between believers that will involve in sharing even material things with fellow believers. Now, many ways, I try many ways to get us to begin to think about what I'm talking about, that we are not, in many cases, we are not really, I mean, this is a phenomenal group of believers, but one of our Achilles here is this idea we don't interact as we should. And part of it is, some of you, as I've said, you come here 30 seconds before I start. You come here enough time to talk with other believers, because I know once we finish, everyone is hungry, you want to go, I understand that. Come here in time. Interact with other believers. That's part of this fellowship. Now if you just come here, just 10 seconds before I start, and you listen and go home, you are not fulfilling this responsibility completely. There's that fellowship. It's missing, and we should be involved in it. As part of the activities. If we're going to do whatever we do to the glory of God. Anyway, so, this Fellowship is very important. That uh, if he, of course, uh, like I say, refers to the spiritual fellowship in which there is a real sense of connection between believers that will involve in sharing even material things with fellow believers. Now, this is implied in the third activity of believers in the group of assembled believers it, that is described in the phrase. The breaking of bread. Look at the next one. It said the breaking of bread. Now this is taken as a reference to the love meal of believers. That is followed by the Lord's Supper. So that we can say that the third activity of the church that every believer should participate is the love meal and the Lord's Supper. Now some of you in this local church, do not recognize that it is an important activity that you are required to be engaging as a believer in Christ. So I'm saying to you that if you fail your responsibility as a believer in Christ, that you are failing. If you absent yourself from this activity that involves breaking of bread with fellow believers, that is an essential part. Now, so if you say, well, I come here and I go. And we have, for example, a love feast, you don't want to show up. You have failed. You have not obeyed completely God's instruction. Now, because, look at what I'm saying. I'm not kidding. It's a four activities. And you see, I'm laying them out. It's, it's there. Now, you can pat yourself at the back and say, what a great believer I am because I come here. No, if you don't follow all this that we're going through, you're not fulfilling your responsibility as unto the Lord the way he wants you to do so. Anyway, the fourth activity is prayer. As in the phrase, still in Acts 2, when it says, to prayer. Now this refers in the context of prayer of the Christian community and possibly the Jewish prayer that takes place at stipulated time. Anyway, we have mentioned four activities that believers 
will normally be engaged because of the activities of the early church. However, as we indicated, there are at least seven spiritual activities that a believer should be involved with that are not covered with the word whatever, I mean that's covered under the word whatever or of the sentence whatever you do. First Corinthians ten thirty one. Now, so I've given four. The remaining three I mean there'll be more, but that's at least seven. The remaining three are given not in one specific passage, but in different passages. In different passages. Thus, then I say the fifth activity a believer is expected to be involved in is witnessing. Witnessing. That is, telling others about Jesus Christ and his goodness towards you. The Lord Jesus directly stated to the disciples that it is their responsibility to witness for him. And we are his disciples. It's our responsibility according to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. It is but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now to be a witness for Christ means you talk about what he did. Personally special for you. Now this is one of those things where I am a firm believer in experiential Christianity. Something you learn by experience you don't forget. Somebody can wake you up from night. You get, I mean, if you wake me up in the middle of the night and tell me to do some of the drill I learned over 40 years ago in the middle, I'll do it. Because you repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. It becomes almost a part of you. So here, when we are told to be witnesses, there's something very interesting about what I call it. I call it if you're an eyewitness. An eyewitness is more powerful than any other kind of evidence. I mean, except for the DNA, evidence could be obtained in different ways. Even that can be obtained in different ways. There's something about evidence. The reason I say this is an evidence does not always mean it's true. I know they will say, what are you talking about? I use the Bible to tell you. So you know what I'm talking about. Now you remember, we studied in detail of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Who said, you must have sex with me. They said, no, I cannot do a thing like this against my God. And the woman wanted to rape him. So he ran out. Holding, took the, the man's coat or clothes with him, with her. That's evidence that he presented the husband. Say, look at this Jew, this Hebrew man came to rape me. Now how are you going to convert that? That's an evidence. Well, I mean, the man will say, what's your clothes doing while, uh, 
why I said them. If, if, if she's lying, you see why I say evidence doesn't always mean what you think it means. But when you watch something as an eyewitness, man, that is more powerful. This is why these disciples, they saw Christ teach. They saw him being crucified. They saw him resurrect. Therefore, that man, Apostle Peter, who was so timid that he denied knowing Christ before a slave little girl, was now ready to tell those people the feared authority says, I don't care what you say. Is it better to obey you or to obey God? Why? He's become a full witness. So how do we translate that? It is this way. If you have a true experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, through his study, application of the word, if you actually have that true experience, that's a part of your life, your witness becomes a whole lot different. Because you know what you're talking about. It doesn't matter what anyone thinks about it. Because you become authoritative. Because you're an eyewitness. You've experienced it. So you know. You can tell somebody. They don't like it. Let them go wherever they want to go. But you're going to hold your ground. Because you have found. You have found that this is true. It's not something you read. Only. You have known by experience. That this life in Christ is real. And therefore, no matter what anyone says, you don't care. But as long as you haven't reached that level, that's why you don't talk about Christ. People come around you, you talk about hunting, fishing, football, basketball, whatever. But you never talk about Christ. Why? It's not real yet to you. I'm not saying you're not a believer yet. It's just it's not yet real to you. Because when it is real to you, that will be something you talk about all the time. So that's our responsibility. Say, be my witnesses. The sixth, of course, is giving. Now this activity is described in two ways. It's described in terms of sharing what one has with others. As we read in Romans chapter 12 verse 13. Romans chapter 12 verse 13 It reads Romans chapter 12 verse 13 reads Share with God's people who are in need Practice hospitality Now it is this kind of giving that laid to the instruction given to the Corinthians about their giving to help believers in Jerusalem, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. It reads, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income. Saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. So that's part of giving. 
of showing hospitality and supporting other believers who are in need. Now, giving is also described in terms of the support of the ministry and those in the ministry of the word of God as we read in Galatians chapter 6 verse 6. Galatians chapter 6 verse 6. It is, anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all good things with his instructor. So that given is the sixth activity, expected of all believers in the spiritual realm. The seventh activity of believers in the spiritual realm is praise of God. That includes singing. Now, I don't mean some of you when you're singing in the morning, Sunday morning, you're just like, hmm. Okay, you know, you just, I don't know what to call it. Some, maybe somebody in the funeral, really. In fact, some, some people in the funeral are more elated. Anyway, but here it includes singing. Believers are expected to praise God as we may gather from First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 reads, But you are a chosen people. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So in addition to praise, we are then required to sing songs. Now, as we read in Ephesians chapter 5, Verses 19 through 20. Now, I think now, I mean, I, I, I don't knock on people having all kind of emotional display with singing that. I don't knock that. But that is not really some of the songs uh, that the Lord expects from believers to say. Because some of these songs. I intended to teach us. And they are not easy, easy to sing in terms of appealing to our emotions per se. Now look at what it says. It says here, Speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So anyway, we have mentioned some of the activities that believers are expected to be involved in as part of what is meant by the word, whatever of the sentence, whatever you do. So this brings us to the second question that we need to consider. That is, what does the phrase of First Corinthians 10 verse 31. The glory of God. What does that phrase mean? Now the question 
Really, we you know, to answer that question, we need to answer another question first. So the question we need uh, first to answer is, what is glory? What is glory? So that's the first thing. Well, the word glory, the way we do that is, look at the Greek word use. The word glory is translated from a Greek word that means honor, prestige. That's what meaning honor, prestige. As it is used in Jesus' teaching in John chapter 7 verse 18. Well, looking at time, if I continue, we'll get where we're out of time. So we'll take a break, and after break, we'll look at it. <laughs> 